It's Tuesday, April 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Are movie theaters ready for their comeback? Over the holiday weekend, Godzilla vs. Kong hit it big at the box office, posting the best numbers since the pandemic began, and sent a signal to the entertainment industry that pent-up demand is there. Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to look out for as we get closer to the summer movie season full of pandemic-delayed releases. Next, retail pharmacies are a huge part of the administration's plan to get the country vaccinated. But privacy watchdogs are raising red flags and want oversight in how these pharmacies might be using personal information to boost profits. In many cases, to sign up for your vaccine, you may need to hand over phone numbers, emails, and even more personal data. Mohana Ravindranath, eHealth reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Finally, a heads up on a very lucrative career opportunity filled with sun and sand. In 2019, the latest year we have data for, the top paid lifeguards in Los Angeles earned up to $329,000. Now, these are not pool lifeguards or part-timers hanging at the beach guard towers, but captains and chiefs. Adam Andrzejewski, senior contributor to Forbes, gives us details on the top paid lifeguards. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It was very easily the best performer of the pandemic so far. Not that it takes much to get there, but did very, very well. And I think for a lot of executives watching these numbers, told them that there was an appetite among consumers to get back into theaters. Joining us now is Eric Schwartzel, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. The entertainment industry was hit pretty hard uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, especially with regards to movie theaters, theater going. You know, obviously a lot of industries were hurt hard, but this is the one we're going to focus on for now. And, you know, one of the things that we saw this past week uh, looking at the box office, Godzilla versus Kong had a pretty great weekend, the best actually since the whole pandemic began. And, you know, these numbers are probably still low in comparison to huge blockbusters in, in a normal time. But uh, it was a good signal for the industry that there's a lot of pent-up demand for people to get back to the movie theaters to kind of get that industry going again. And we're seeing a lot of states loosen restrictions now, allow theater going. There's still some capacity limits on those, but it's all a good sign for the entertainment industry. So, Eric, tell us a little bit about what we saw over the weekend. Yeah, I think the big thing to focus on is the fact that Godzilla vs. Kong, which really is the first big budget offering since the majority of theaters have reopened in the U.S., posted an opening that was far healthier than many expected. It was in the upper 40s, about 48.5 million in the U.S. and Canada over five days. And as you said, it was very easily the best performer of the pandemic so far. Not that it takes much to get there but did very, very well. And I think for a lot of executives watching these numbers, told them that there was an appetite among consumers to get back into theaters. And this is a question that they've had for about 13 months now, which is whether or not people who have been accustomed to streaming movies at home and watching things from their couch would want to go back to the theater. And I don't know how long this is going to last, but it seems like it's a healthy start. And that's the other wrinkle to this is that Warner Brothers decided to release this movie on HBO Max also for free. I mean, basically for free, if you already subscribe to HBO Max, I was one of those people. I watched it at home and, you know, I I enjoyed myself watching it at home, but I do miss going to the movie theater. So that's kind of the other thing is Warner Media said that they're going to be releasing all their big movies 
on the HBO Max platform also. So despite that, they had a pretty good showing. This is a big question as well. You're, as you said, Warner Media's entire slate of 2021 films are debuting simultaneously on HBO Max and in theaters. And I think that the important thing to keep in mind here is that this was Godzilla versus Kong. This was not a chamber drama. This was not a, uh, you know, even a small scale comedy. This was a kind of movie that is traditionally seen on the big screen and interpreted as a big screen experience. And we saw that with auditoriums like IMAX and the premium large format auditoriums that often cost a little bit more money really overperforming this weekend because it seems like people said, if I'm going to go to the theater, I want to see it on the biggest screen possible. The looming question, however, is whether or not the availability and that kind of simultaneous release structure is going to change consumer expectations about when a movie is available to watch. Now, let's talk a little bit of a comparison from uh, the other previous record holders during the pandemic, Wonder Woman 1984, which came out in December, that was the best one before that. And then a couple of other movies that barely broke 10 million. So uh, that's kind of just yep. what the difficulty was there. I mean, we were looking at a couple months there where it was pretty hard to find a theater that was open. And if they were, that weren't at incredibly reduced capacity. And now it seems like there's been a bit of a breakthrough. About 55% of North American theaters are open right now might seem like a low number, but because of the markets where those theaters are operating, it represents about 92% of the available box office. Now, in cities like Los Angeles, where I am, theaters are still operating at 25% capacity. However, one thing to keep in mind is that there are far fewer films in the market right now. So a movie like Godzilla vs. Kong, even if it is operating at 25% capacity in each auditorium, can book maybe six, eight, ten auditoriums in a single multiplex. You made a note, too, in the article talking about kind of during the pandemic, a lot of the top performing theaters and areas were places like drive-in theaters, smaller markets. But for Godzilla versus Kong, L.A., El Paso, big uh, multiplexes, these were the biggest drivers of sales this past weekend. It's looking like the market that the pre-pandemic returns would have seen. Texas really overperformed, I noticed. I don't know what necessarily was driving that. But, I mean, if you would look every Sunday morning when the box office returns come out, you would look and see what were the top-performing circuits or what were the top-performing markets, and it was one drive-in theater after another. Now it seems like the places that you would expect to be posting the highest returns really are. You know, the larger question, I think, is also what happens going forward because it's now about another two months or so before we have another big movies coming out. And you can imagine that more people will be vaccinated by then. Capacity restrictions will probably be further lifted. And you could probably see more and more returns like this coming. The summer movie season, probably about late May is when it's going to get kicked off. What are we expecting there? What kind of movies are we going to see? Because a lot of those that are coming out were all things that were delayed due to the pandemic. I mean, almost everything coming out this summer was supposed to have been out last summer or even last spring. And it's presenting a couple issues, actually, for Hollywood, because these are movies that have to be remarketed in some cases. But there's also fear of cannibalization or some kind of calendar pallop, because I think it's in late June, for instance, there are three major movies coming out one after another. And traditionally, Hollywood likes to give those kinds of releases a little bit more breathing room. And that's harder to do because there's so many titles waiting to be released. Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. 
and they're, you know, collectively uh, offering millions of doses of a life-saving vaccine. Um, what does that mean for people that potentially don't have a choice but to make an account with a Walmart or a Sam's Club or something like that in exchange for the vaccine? Joining us now is Mohana Ravindranath, eHealth reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Mohana. Thanks for having me. The Biden administration has bet really big on retail pharmacies in this whole rollout of the vaccines. You know, we're sending millions of doses to CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aids, Walmarts even, all obviously in the effort to uh, get as many people vaccinated as possible. But what also is happening right now is there's a lot of privacy watchdogs that are sounding alarms on, you know, the information that you have to hand over when you're trying to book your appointment, whether it be phone number, email, both. In some cases, some of these places make you sign up for like an online portal and you have to give some personal information there. They say they're using it to track people and give them reminders when it's their vaccine time and schedule appointments are up. But, you know, they could also be using it for some other things. So, you know, that's what the concern is. So, Mohana, tell us a little bit more about this, please. So we know that national retail pharmacy chains are a big part of the federal vaccine rollout. And what we're finding is that to be able to get these slots, people often have to make an account or they have to share some information with like a CVS or a Rite Aid or a Walmart to be able, in some cases, to even find out if they're eligible or to find out if there's a slot available. So the question now becomes, what can pharmacies do with that data? And, you know, we know that retail pharmacies have for a long time had huge amounts of data on people that are going in for flu shots or refilling their prescriptions and and things like this. They also have marketing. They have uh, information on people's buying habits based on what they buy sort of at the front of the store. But the question arises now when they're part of, you know, the public health emergency response and they're, you know, collectively uh, offering millions of doses of a life-saving vaccine. um, What does that mean for people that potentially don't have a choice but to make an account with a Walmart or a Sam's Club or something like that in exchange for the vaccine? So one of the things we're looking at is, you know, are they able to use that information for marketing or uh, are they able to sign you up for a loyalty program? And uh, based on our review of these sites, often these companies don't make clear how they're using that data. And we have companies like CVS who have been very upfront about their plans to, in the future, use this information for turning these newcomers into repeat customers. Yeah, that was uh, very interesting. Uh, You know, and, and so these pharmacies have a lot of room to collect these user customer data and everything, they can't use a lot of your health information, sensitive health information. So there's a distinction there. But that number and that email, as you mentioned, they can use it for a couple of other things there. But tell me about a little bit more about that. Uh, There was like some memos or something going around talking about how, because you're supposed to wait about 15 minutes uh, after you get your vaccine to make sure you don't get any reactions. And this was a key moment where they can help turn these uh, people getting their vaccines into longer term customers. How, How did that work out? So it's interesting as I talk to these companies and, you know, the participants in this retail rollout are not just huge national pharmacy chains like a CVS, but also networks of independent pharmacies. And I think what they're doing right now is they're trying to figure out how do we make this into sort of a business opportunity somewhere down the line. Of course, they will all tell us and, you know, no reason not to believe that this is, you know, it's, it's a crucial part of public health response, of course, that is their main priority. But then um, we also know that it's not really a moneymaker for them. And so I think they're realizing that they do have access to huge amounts of data as part of this hefty rollout. 
So they're thinking about how they can sort of, you know, increase brand awareness. You know, some of the independent, the smaller independent pharmacies are thinking, you know, how can we let people in the community know who we are, people who have never come to us? And in the case of CVS, it's like, how do we tell people that have never come to CVS before who we are and what we do? So I I see a lot of these pharmacies thinking about um, how this really cumbersome rollout process can be valuable somewhere down the line in terms of, you know, marketing or building their healthcare response. And some of the uh, criticism for some of these privacy watchdogs is that when people go in and their flu shots, this isn't really done that way. They're not really collecting that type of information. So why would it be happening with this? And I get it. You have to make your appointment. The resources are low right now with the vaccines. But, you know, they're making those comparisons to flu shots where they don't really collect a lot of that information. If you're going to go, it's free and it's it's quick. I think there are a couple of things that make this different from flu shot rollout. I think the volume the number of people that are you know, being asked and expected to get the vaccine is probably greater than the number that generally get their flu shot. So I think that there is a difference in the, the amount of data that they're getting from a larger number of people than they normally would. But there's also right. this question of, you know, do people always have to create accounts? I think people are often able to drop in for their flu shots. And a lot of these pharmacies are not allowing you to just drop in for your COVID shots. You do have to make an account. In some cases, that account is kept separate from their marketing databases. But at least these companies are telling me that in some cases they are keeping the uh, COVID-19 vaccine sign up separate from marketing databases. But some companies have not been as explicit. And so what has the reaction been to this, at least from the retail pharmacies? So in our review, my colleague and I, when we were looking through all these portals, we're finding that places like Walmart and Sam's Club require you to make an account first before you even look at eligibility, before you can see scheduling. Other places will let you look at scheduling and eligibility before you make an account, but you do have to make an account to sign up. And so it's really interesting to see the wide variation in what people have to share. Um, Places like Rite Aid, for instance, will ask for your social security number. Not everybody does that. And so what the amount of data that a person has to share, and I think how it's used, will vary depending on the pharmacy. And I think that's where privacy watchdogs are also raising the alarm. Mohana Ravindranath, eHealth reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I didn't time anything. I just took the plunge. You know, I told everybody there what I was going to do, how this was going to, how we were going to egress. And regardless of what happens and how long I'm in there, do not come in. Joining us now is Adam Andrzejewski, senior contributor to Forbes and CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Oscar, great to be on the podcast. Thank you very much for your interest in our work. Yeah, it's a it's a fun story. Uh, you know, this might be one of those professions that a lot of people are sleeping on. I, I undoubtedly believe that a lot of people would want to do this, but one of these high paid professions that you kind of just don't think of really being a lifeguard, a lifeguard in California specifically can be pretty lucrative. The top lifeguard for this is for the latest year available that we had uh, this information from 2019, the top lifeguards earned up to $392,000. That is a boatload of cash. So Adam, tell us a little bit about the breakdowns of this and how much these lifeguards are earning. Well, Oscar, I think we just put the Baywatch lifeguards in Los Angeles County on Paywatch. Baywatch on Paywatch. Who knew that on total compensation, that salary, special perquisites like free sunscreen allowance, health care, pension benefits, that all in, the top paid lifeguard on L.A. County's beaches 
made last year $392,000. So let's put that in perspective. On salary, the president of the United States makes 400,000. The top paid federal employee out of 4 million federal employees is Dr. Anthony Fauci. He makes 430,000. So you got the lifeguards costing LA County taxpayers up to 392,000. And to be clear, this is not necessarily the guy on Tower 9 or whatever just hanging out there. These are uh, chiefs and captains. You know, they're responsible for a lot more stuff. But still, let's break down how they're making this money. So, for instance, the uh, top paid lifeguard, the one that made almost 392000 he's the acting chief lifeguard. So he's the boss. And there's a thousand lifeguards in L.A. County. Some are on the beach, the ocean lifeguards, and then some are at the pools. The ones at the pools don't make a lot of money. They like, <laughs> right. make less than $50,000 all in. The ocean lifeguards and the bosses, they actually make a lot of money. So the top one, his salary is 205000 So he actually out-earns Governor Gavin Newsom. California Governor Gavin Newsom is the most highly paid governor in the 50 states, and he makes 202000 So the chief on the L.A. County beaches, he makes 205000 a salary. His perks add up to another 60000 That's where you get the free sunscreen allowance and other things like paid time off. And then you got benefits of health care and pension benefits. And his benefits actually cost the taxpayers $125,000 alone last year. You add it all up, he makes nearly four hundred grand. And you made mention in the article, too, about, you know, you might think some of these lifeguards uh, doing these big, great acts of heroism would get a big pay as well. These guys that are out there saving lives and stuff a lot of times aren't the highest paid still. So we took a look at the second highest paid lifeguard. He's the captain, Daniel Douglas, and he pulled down almost 370000 last year. Actually, we went over the course of the past five years. We looked at his overtime pay because last year on overtime pay, he was number one. He made one hundred and thirty one grand in overtime pay in addition to his base salary. Over the course of the past five years, he's worked a lot of extra hours. He's a hardworking lifeguard. He's made $630,000 of overtime since 2015 through 2019 over that five-year period. That's amazing. And like I said, I mentioned some of these lifeguards who do these extreme acts of heroism. There was uh, the 2020 Medal of Valor winner. uh, His name is Edward Nick Mako. He's an ocean lifeguard specialist, so he does some of these more extreme uh, rescues if they need him. And that's exactly what he did. There's uh, some amazing video of a rescue he did in 2019 in Palos Verdes, I believe. They had, he had to go into a gorge, swim through a cave with razor-sharp rocks, save a guy, swim him out. Uh, he only, I like the way you put it in the article, only, quote-unquote, made 134000 in compensation. So he was 167th out of the 1,000 employees of the LA Lifeguard Corps. So uh, he's kind of, uh, you know, in the middle towards the bottom of all that. And let's hope they're Medal of Valor winners like Nick Mako, that he gets a bonus next year. Because, I mean, there's 168 of those ocean lifeguards that ranked ahead of him on compensation, and he's the guy that won the award. So, you know, maybe if there's somebody that is undercompensated, making 134,000 on the beaches of L.A. County, America loves a hero, and maybe Nick needs a bonus this year. Adam Angievsky, senior contributor to Forbes and CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.